Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to David Morgan of the Morgan Report. He's been writing it for over 20 years, a very honest, blunt uh, assessor of market conditions. He also gives stock picks and tips uh, and tries to teach people what they should be looking at. We also discuss today economic realities, market manipulation, the Fed, quantitative easing, big banks versus high street, stagnation, inflation, hyperinflation, and lots of things, except for the thing I called up to talk to him about, which is silver. Hopefully he'll speak to us in a couple of weeks, uh, so do look out for that. Enjoy this podcast. David, how are you doing, sir? Man, I'm doing well, and thanks for inviting me. Well, pleasure to have you on the show. We've seen quite a few of your interviews, always entertaining, always informative. Um, and a you know, pleasure to introduce you to followers and uh, subscribers to this show for, for a start. And we're going to romp our way through a, f- a few topics, I suspect, but maybe why don't you kick off for people and give a little bit of background to yourself. And obviously, there's uh, something called the Morgan Report, which you write and produce. Well, you hit my favorite subject, me. <laughs> so I'll try to be brief, but... Uh... I don't. I was 11 years old when the coinage changed. So I saw silver go from, you know, 90% coinage that uh, was paid up 25 cent a week allowance back in, you know, 10 years of age. And it changed. So that kind of, you know, made my interest level go up. Like, wow, this can't be worth, the old one can't be worth, it's got to be worth more than the new one. And so, you know, I pursued it from there and I read the, you know, guide to investment or careers in the World Book Encyclopedia that I had. And I actually read not the entire encyclopedia, but a great deal of it. And I um, wanted to get into the financial field. It just fascinated me that you could invest and eventually make a living as an investor. I thought, wow, that's interesting. So I like the idea of what I call the American model, nothing against the UK whatsoever. Uh, and it's not, it's just my take on it, but basically entrepreneurship where someone's got a good idea, you can help that family member or that, that entrepreneur bring the business to fruition. And if it's successful, you all share in the profits. And I thought, man, that is so cool. You know, so I got on this business bent. My dad was like anti-stockbroker at the time. He'd lost a lot of money in the market. And so when he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be you know, in finance. Oh, you're not going to do that. So went back to the career guide from the encyclopedia, I looked it up and saw uh, airline pilot looked like the way to go. So I started flying when I was 16. By the time I was 19, I had every rating you could get, including an instructor rating. I was at Cal Poly getting a degree in aeronautical engineering, and I taught flying. So I taught the Dean of Architecture to fly, his wife, a few other, you know, here and there, I had about six students. And then every summer when I came home, I would go to the flight school where I started and be a flight instructor there. So I built up a pretty good book of hours and I got into the military side of the aircraft industry out of school, but my heart was always in finance. So one day sitting in the back seat of the test pilots, and here I am like a 22-year-old kid, and these gods are sitting in the you know, front seat waiting to do engine runs on the B-1 bomber. Uh, one of them whips out this financial newsletter and starts reading it to the other pilot. And man, my ears were like this. It's like, what? And here's like inside information on the economy. And this is like everything I want to know. So that introduced me to the newsletter industry, which in those days was snail mail. There was no internet. So I got involved with that at an early age and saw an alternative view or what I call the real truth about the economic scene, how the banking system works and on and on. I did a self-study and I just 
basically always was in the markets, even from an early age. I started trading stocks when I was 16. So I think that's enough of my background. I'm very passionate about it still. Once I discovered fractional reserve banking, I realized what a scam it was. And, you know, when I used to tell people that the Federal Reserve was a private corporation held primarily by European bankers, you know, I was, as a metaphor, spit on, excuse this, you know, grossness, but, you know, no one believed it. With the advent of the internet, of course, it's easy to prove, but back in the early days, when you said something like that, you were definitely a lone wolf. So things changed. I left the aircraft industry and started um, actually private consulting and a little bit. And I worked for a certified financial planner. Didn't like it. I saw too many restrictions and pushing products I didn't really believe in. But you we were told this is the one to get going, you know, kind of thing. So I basically went independent and have been that way ever since and started uh, my passion, which is to write a financial newsletter back about 22 years ago now. And um, it was a pretty tough go at the beginning as far as getting subscribers, paid subscribers, but it happened. And it's gone up and down since then, but certainly we're back on the positive side and uh, still very passionate still of what I do. So very long background check, but there you go. That's, that's fantastic. Gives us some color. Colorful, colorful life, colorful man. We like that. Um, so, talk, but tell me a little bit more about the Morgan Report. You know, what what do you think the essence of it is? You know, you're, you're very um, r- robust and honest guy from my, my reading of you know some of the interviews that you've done. Um, what sort of advice are you giving? I get the financial bit, but you know, what are you helping people to try and achieve? Well, I think the number one most important statement I can make is as follows. When I learned about the newsletter industry, I became a newsletter junkie. I started subscribing to almost everything out there. And the gold sector is very slanted and it's very biased. It's really very promotional to small micro cap stocks, penny stocks. I call them penny dreadfuls. And basically the hype is always basically the same story. We've discovered something that nobody else knows about. It's only 12 cents and if you buy it, it's going to go to the moon and the queen of england's going to be borrowing money from you you're so rich and of course i'm exaggerating somewhat but that's the spiel it's like you know so what i discovered by trial and error was that those stocks almost always go to zero eventually they're usually pump and dumps and there's no validity to these most newsletters so when i started i did it the old-fashioned way, you know, reading, you know, value investing, learning, 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 lots of courses that I paid for, you know, the CFP thing. I didn't get certified, by the way, but I did work for a CFP. Regardless, I just am, a, at the time, very studious. I still am, but not to that level, and gobbled up everything I could. And I learned pretty early on, if you really want to invest, you invest. You know, uh, I'm not a huge fan of Warren Buffett, but you know you want companies that have earnings, that have growth potential, that are real, that you have the truth about. So I constructed the Morgan Report as the antithesis of the industry at large, which means big money and big companies. And this is where you know I have more fund managers, family offices, and AIs on my mastermind than anybody probably in the industry because one, I'm trustworthy. Two, the private placements that we do do I vet very thoroughly and they kind of get the inside track the best of the best so to speak which means a lot of this 
penny stock world nonsense and I just bypass it all together. Are there some worth pursuing? The answer is yes. In fact, uh, I have gotten more of those penny stocks to be that be, actually became mines than anybody else in the industry. And I'm not a geologist. So how does that happen? Right. And there's a story behind that. I don't have time to go into it, but basically big money in big companies, medium money in mid companies and bet a little to win a lot. And if one of these speculations start to really meet their mission statement or their story, then we'll actually load up. Western silver is a good example. I had it as Western copper, it really is a copper mine. But of course, if you put silver on the name, you immediately get a revaluation, which they did when they discovered Pensquito. The stock was way undervalued. So even though I recommended, I make it up the number, I can't remember the exact price, but 65 cents Canadian. Once it had doubled or tripled, I'd say it's still worth buying and you can buy it in size. Don't overload the boat, but it's a different company. They have a major discovery. They didn't when we first put it on the list. So I'm one of the few, I think, that teach that, that when you have a true fundamental paradigm shift, which happens rarely, like one out of 5,000, and you're lucky enough for, to get that, evaluate it at the time and determine if it's, you know, undervalued, fair valued or overvalued. And if it's undervalued, you can fairly safely take a larger position and reap the rewards thereof. And we've done that several times. Do I get them all right? No. Have I had failures? Yes. Some of these speculations, but I always do it right. In other words, until the company proves to me that they're on their way, keep it, you know, money you can afford to lose. So that's the essence. I've constructed it how I invest. You're looking over my shoulder. You're seeing what I'm doing, what I'm buying, and why. And it's worked out really well. Do you get those 10, 20, 30 baggers all the time? No. Those days are over. That happened at the beginning of the market where, excuse my my directness, my brutal honesty, but almost any fool looked good in the gold sector because there was so much pent-up demand for anything with gold or silver in the name any piece of moose pasture probably went up in the early days. Those days are long gone. So tell me what you what do you make of today's generation of newsletter writers? Because we, we see a lot of newsletter writers pumping for business out there, right? And they, they all follow a certain pattern, right? There's some really good ones. And just take everything I say with a grain of salt about anything outside of the precious metals industry, because I don't know what it's like in the you know tech sector or biotech or nanotech or uh, general stock market letters. There are some very good ones out there. I don't want to make such a broad brush picture that they're all not worth you know the effort. Uh, in fact, some of the generalist letters, I actually get a couple just to make sure I'm not missing anything with the big picture. Pretty good. But the problem I have with them is their stock lists are so massive that it just dilutes your ability to make superior gains. I'm much more of a... Uh, you know, rifle shot shot than a uh, shotgun shot. You know, I want to focus. I say if you can't pick six companies and make money, you don't know what the heck you're doing. And But my letters to, is for a hedge position. It would be like 20% of your portfolio would be devoted to everything I think, know, and say, and teach. Uh, and the other 80% is sort of back to you. What are you going to do with it kind of a thing? But generally speaking, in the gold industry, it's gotten better than it used to be. So it's it's improved. But there's still too many, in my opinion, push toward the micro cap stocks that, you know, most of the time run out of money. I mean, if you bet all of your investment in the 
in the resource sector on penny stocks, chances are you'll go broke, especially if you buy every newsletter and buy every one that's recommended. And I hate to say it, but it's the truth. And, you know, I know several guys in the sector that specialize in that. One's a geologist. I consider him a friend. And he does a very honest report. He only invests or reports what he himself invests in, which is fair. And there's another one that does a very good job. So there's a couple in that sector that I'm well acquainted with that do a good job. But still, having said that, the risk reward profile is not correct in my very strong view because my risk reward profile, if you got big money in big stocks and you're making, let's say last year we made 63%, it's not always that good, I admit it. But even in a, in a flat year, you can write options on these stocks and gain 20 to 30% a year just by lease or what I call renting your stock. You know, and most sophisticated family offices or fund managers know how to do that. And I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'd make a video. I say, look, uh, Franco Nevada's gotten over, overextended here. It's outside of the Bollinger Bands. I'm going to write some calls. And I did that recently. I'm just using a recent example. And so I picked up, you know, oh, probably around 12% for three months renting my stock. And you know what? It's going to work out perfectly again. I don't get it right 100% of the time, but usually I do. And, you know, I picked up 12% for three months letting someone bet that they knew the stock was going higher. And, you know, for a little while, it looked like it was a bad bet. In other words, it was above the strike price I wrote. And all, but I didn't have a big panic attack. Stock came back down in the three-month time frame. It's worked to my advantage again. Here's a question for you. I, I want your view. You've got to have a view on the, on the macro to be able to kind of dig down and, and make these sorts of investments. So... There's, there's a phrase uh, or saying here, which you can feel some of the people all of the time and all of the people, some of the time, but not all of the people, all of the time, right? So you, you, I don't know if you have that in North America. You do. You do. Okay. I want to talk to you about economic reality, because you seem like a realist, economic reality versus market manipulation. So what, what do you think is going on in the States at the moment? Well, I'm going to address the states. I'll answer your question. I'm going to expand it to the, to the global empire. So the April newsletter, I, usually, I start every newsletter with a quote, and I end with a statement. But the quote I used in April was from Elliot Janeway. You can look him up. He died in, I think, 1993. He was a bit of a maverick and an independent thinker, which is rare in those days, still is. And his quote was, the next Great Depression will make the last Great Depression look like a small technical correction. And he was referring to the 1930s Depression, which was obviously, anyone who studied it, even at a cursory level, knows it was well beyond the United States. It affected a great deal of Europe and, uh, you know, it affected the world in a way. So that statement is a very bold one. I use that as the opening quote for the April letter, because we're having a huge contraction. I'm just going to go for the globe to the states. We've had a huge contraction in the global economy months before the CV thing hit. And I can prove that because I do a weekly podcast for free called The Weekly Perspective, where I show usually mainstream articles, Bloomberg, Reuters, uh, MSNBC, uh, The Financial Times, 
it is our main experience. If you know where to dig, you can find these things and it's right in your face. So we've had a huge contraction in, in all, across the board, but the one that's most worrisome is the foodstuffs. We've seen a great contraction in food supply, partly due to the locust infestation throughout Africa, the swine situation in China where they've killed off many, and the United States uh, flooding through the Mississippi Valley that took out uh, about a third of the plantable land because it was underwater. And it also hit some of the stylos where food was stored for grain for animal feed. Then of course they've shut down many of the meat packing plants. So we're facing a critical food supply shortage basically on a U.S. basis and further globally over the next year, year and a half. And I wouldn't be surprised at all to see on aggregate food prices double in the next year to year and a half. I really believe that to be the case. So that's number one, because most Americans will think, oh my gosh, this is horrible inflation, when actually it's more of a supply problem than a printing press money problem. Although they go hand in hand, Americans aren't, excuse my frankness and boldness, smart enough to know the difference. And it's, it's immaterial because they'll start to look at what's the stock market doing and what can I do to protect myself? And sometimes it's to buy ahead. You know, go buy a case of tuna now for 40 bucks because the next time I have to buy it, it'll be 60 bucks. So I'm very concerned about that. And, and then, of course, the trust factor globally is broken down. You know, everyone's going more toward nationalism. The supply chain's disrupted. Do we really want to trade with you? And you know that trade agreement we had. Do we really want to adhere to it? It doesn't seem fair anymore. And hey, what about our natural resources? We're sending them to you for these pieces of paper that you print at will. Are they really valuable? And so there's all kinds of currents and cross currents going on on a global basis that not only because of the CV supply chain disruption, there's a complete rethinking of what the contractual basis between nation states are and what are we getting value for value. I mean, and to go one step further, there's a complete and total disruption, and this is a really hot point for me, between what the stock market valuations are in a physical economy. There's absolutely no relationship except for specific companies between their stock price and physical economic activity, which is really upsetting because people are so mind-controlled that they think if the Dow is good or the S&P 500 is good, then the economy is good, and nothing could be a bigger lie. It used to be true. I mean, the Dow, I mean Dow, the Dow theory was valid at the time. I mean, if the transportation's validated the industrials, you knew that industry's doing well and they're transporting those goods with rail and trucks and et cetera, and it's moving, you know, production. I mean, as, a, as an Austrian or mostly an Austrian, I mean, wealth isn't gold. Wealth is the means of production, producing food, producing products, producing houses, producing wealth, making, creating something of value for everybody. That's wealth, the means of production. And if that's turned off in the United States, which it has been, some's coming back, as we know, uh, and all you do is have a service where everyone's, you know, you got uh, hair salons and fast food and uh, I'll say it, pornography. I mean, you've got all this stuff that's really not productive value and benefit society at large, 
and you're just able to, you know, have the pure position of printing again at will and basically forcing the rest of the world to take your uh, fiat, it ends badly. And it is starting to end. It's obvious it's starting to end. And I think we're moving to a cashless system that's going to be blockchain based. And I'm not a huge fan of crypto. I like the concept, but I'm also fearful that government edicts will demand that you have to use the the Fed dollar if you're in the U.S. and the whatever dollar if you're in the U.K. And you cannot use Bitcoin for real estate purchases, stock purchases, uh, utility bills, your cell phone bill. Oh, yeah, you can use Bitcoin for, you know, whatever, buying books on Amazon or, you know, but I don't, and this is my take. I could be wrong, but I, you know, my take is to think and to think deeply and to think outside of the box. I'm not here to say you have to agree with me, but I want you to think on your own. Do you really think the powers that be are going to give up control of the monetary structure? I doubt it. No, I don't think they will. Um, they, they never have, they never will, because it's about control. And without control, they are nothing. Um, so you talked about a Fed coin or the concept, I know it's a concept, it's, it's saying basically some digital monetary system to create a cashless society through which, like the dollars, it passes through the control of, well, central banks, presumably. Um, so what is your, what's your take? You're clearly not that happy with what the Fed is doing at the moment with, in terms of just printing cash at, at will. Uh, I did spot that nuance, nuance statement of yours. Um, where, but where, where, do you, where does this end? Because you know, in, in election year, I don't think Trump, Trump's put Fed under pressure from day one. I don't think that anything's going to happen before the election. But are you fearful for the results of the US election affecting the, an imminent global crisis? Yes. <clears throat> I mean, uh, all fiat fails. So since the whole you know, global economy's basis primarily on the United States dollars reserve currency. Of course, the BRICs have made an inroads, you know, uh, with their trying to have a buffer between themselves and the U.S. dollar. Um, <clears throat> but I don't think it's viable enough to help them if the dollar is destroyed. So all fiat fails, the dollar's on its way out. There will be a replacement. I'm sure the powers that be uh, have a, a system devised and they probably have a plan B and C if it doesn't go. Mark Carney from your side of the pond has been very vocal. He said the same exact speech or very near the same exact speech three places. He said it uh, at the UN, at Davos and in Jackson. And the speech is we will maintain control we will have a digital-based currency based on modern money theory, which means no limits whatsoever at all, and it will be unbacked, and we're going to stay in charge, and it's going digital, and we have a cashless system. We don't want cash at all. So it's pretty clear what they want. Whether or not they'll get it, I reserve the right to, again, think outside the box. I think they might have a hard sell on that. I don't know because I'm biased. I've studied money for too long. So they probably have a backup plan B where, okay, they're going to tie it to gold, right? So that the, the UK currency, it might be a global one, by the way, but let's just say it's the Fed coin for now. 
and there's one for the European Union or maybe the UK remains its independent currency. I hope they do. But it's backed by some percentage of gold. Or there's a new Bretton Woods where there's some. So the only reason I think that they would not go uh, unbacked is because the market forces is on them. If they can't get control back unless they get confidence back, they'll play the gold card. Until they have to do it, I don't think they will. I think Jim Rickards is probably correct that they'll try to go with like an SDR type of situation where you have a basket of currencies that represents uh, a unit on the on the global stage that uh, takes into account everybody's uh, productive capacity and try to sell that first. But we'll see. I I don't know if anyone knows outside of the tippy top of the pyramid what they have in plan planned, but you know. The Mark Carneys of the world are pretty plain spoken about what their what their main drive is. So it's pretty clear what they want, whether or not, again, it's implemented remains to be determined. What they want and whether or not it's implemented, we're talking about a huge market or need for a huge market correction here. And it's a question of what that looks like. Is it a sharp shock? I don't know if, I won't even say short, sharp shock. I'll say, is it a sharp shock? It happens very, very quickly and takes time to recover. Um, or is there going to be some kind of impetus that, that could, could be used to kind of soften the blow? But nevertheless, it will, will, will be in a, I don't know whether you want to call it some kind of um, stagflation at best, which is probably where we are now, or we get into some sort of inflationary. Um, you know, we get into an inflationary situation or hyperinflationary situation where everything we own just gets devalued significantly overnight. I mean, what are the control mechanisms in your mind? Well, there's really only two outcomes if you, you know, really study it. And, you know, someone can uh, come up and, and, you know, argue against my, my idea or what's been proven. If you have a massive amount of malinvestment, the market in a free market will actually take care of it. That's the beauty of a free market. If you have an idea, Matt, and you get some backers and you go out there and you put out a new product and the market rejects it, well, you fail. And so the idea of a free market is the right to succeed also is the right to fail. And the marketplace will determine whether you had a good idea or a good product or a good service or not. And that balances itself. So you get and up and down and up and down. Generally, the general trend is up because we are inventive and the idea that you had that failed might just spark you to get more energy and say, you know what, I got so close. If we do this, this, and this, it's gonna work. And you get another group to fund you and you put it out and doggone it, you're right the second time. That's the free market. We don't have that. We haven't had that for a very, very long time. I mean, there's a few examples here and there that are probably quote unquote free market, but it's a rare event. So in that case, the malinvestment gets washed through the system. You get what's called the business cycle. You get rid of the bad stuff and you rebuild. We have uh, usurped the free market system a long time ago. And anytime we get any kind of a downturn, the Federal Reserve comes to the rescue and rewards failure. They pay off and reward uh, entities that should fail that should go out. Yes, during the 2008 crisis, there were some investment banks that went down. 
But if they all went down the way that it would have in a free market, uh, it could have taken down the whole economy. I, you know, I'm very, you know, mixed feelings on this because on one hand, my ideology says it should have happened because that's really what's right and fair. The other part of me says, you know what, if it really went to that level that it might have, it could have destroyed the, the economy. So then the reason it got to that point was because the system kept coming in and rescuing failure again and again. And the Resolution Trust Corporation in the 90s, with all these bad real estate loans, came and rewarded failure. If they would have let that real estate settle down and, you know, some places were 10 cents on the dollar, some were 50 cents on the dollar, some were 75 cents on the dollar, and the market came in and took care of it and cleaned it up, you know, three, four, five years later, it's back on track. And yeah, people that made bad decisions paid the consequences of those bad decisions, but the market cleared it and you move on. No, from earlier than that, that's probably a good starting point. And so now, Matt, the truth is, there's never been an unbacked, meaning a fiat currency that has not gone the route of an inflationary depression, which means it will soften the blow, which it has it softened it in the 90s, as I just outlined in the 2008 crisis, which even the mainstream calls it because they're able to continue to print fiat that people believe in. And this extra currency goes to the top tier primarily but enough filters down into the middle class, which is getting wiped out here in the United States and the poor to eat, have some entertainment, go about their lives and survive. And now it's getting to the point where that isn't going to be the case via the food situation I've already outlined and other factors. So there will be an inflationary depression. The problem is back to food, that it will be a stagflation. That term had to be invented in the 70s because Austrians like me would never admit that you could have inflation and deflation at the same time, but you can. And what will happen is people will say, I'm not getting enough money to feed my family. Food prices are climbing too high. I need more. My welfare check should go up. My social security check should go up. My pension should go up or the equivalent in other jurisdictions. And this probably won't happen because the pension plans are broke, the government's broke, a lot of employee benefit plans are broke, a lot of uh, corporate corporations uh, are broke. And so you're going to get the squeeze, which will be deflationary on a personal level. But at the same time, the printing presses keep flying off money. Remember, during the Weimar Republic, the cry all the way up was there's not enough money. Well, of course, there was enough Money, or I should say currency, or was not enough currency. Well, there was, it's just that it didn't satisfy, it didn't have any value. I think that's the road we're going. I don't see a hyperinflation. The bond market is a great um, balancing mechanism because if we can't trust the U.S. treasuries, we're in a world of hurt, and I don't trust them at all. I mean, we all know that they, can't, that they could, in theory, be paid off, in dollars that are so worthless that they don't have any meaning. To go back to the Weimar Republic, some people that had fully paid whole life insurance policies that they worked 30, 40, or 50 years for, by the time they cashed them out, bought a stamp to mail a letter. I mean, I'm not saying we're going that far, but that's the general idea. So I think they'll wipe out the currency. They won't admit 
what's the more morally correct way to to clear the system is to be honest from the start obviously but even in this late date to be honest about it and say you know if you made a bad bet you have to pay the price all these investment banks that made all these stupid ideas these stupid bets these stupid programs all these derivatives you're wrong and you have to pay the price for being wrong that's the morally correct one. and that contracts the money supply into a deflationary mode where the almighty dollar is worth actually more than it is now as far as value is concerned. But that won't happen. I just know from study and every time that it's been a fiat system, the easier way politically is to blame something like a CV and then keep printing until the public on their own determines that, you know what, I don't trust this fiat anymore. And then, of course, they'll be ready to step in and say, oh, you know, this this capital, they'll blame it on capitalism, of course. Capitalism doesn't work. What we need is this new system. We're going to this uh, AI system where everything's fair. It's resource-based. The technocracy's in charge. Everyone's going to treat fairly. There'll be social justice throughout the system. And it's going to be a great day in paradise because everyone's guaranteed at least a universal basic income. On top of that, if you're homeless, you've got this cubicle that everybody's going to get as a minimum. And just we're going to make everybody happy and equal, and it's equally poor. And this is what they're really pushing for as a technocracy. It's beyond the communist revolution, which is basically a stepping stone to a technocratic uh, Orwellian slash uh, Brave New World Huxley type of environment where the controllers live in a style that uh, we're witness to and everyone else is basically leveled out equally poor and deemed by the state what their job function is or what their uh, what their worth is basis what they determine for you where you get your decision making basically goes to almost zero that's a very disturbing sorry if i painted too big a picture you asked me what I think. I'm not afraid to say it. <laughs> it's a very disturbing dystopian, uh, well, painting, to use your, your analogy there, where we, you say there's the, the huge disconnect, is what you're saying, between the powers that be, to use your phrase, um, where the banks, big banks, get to make some bets. If they're wrong, they get bailed out. Um, but if it all goes well, they make a lot of profit, and there's a huge disconnect between the, the, the populace, the people, well, we've seen it in the United States. There's some, I think there's some underlying anger um, and has been brewing up for some time. And, you know, I'm not going to talk about necessarily just, you know, it's not necessarily about race, but it's about um, jobs and job security and sort of know, knowing, well, feeling a little bit safer about the future. And I just don't think we're, we're not seeing that from in Europe uh, when we're looking over at the US at the moment. It, it feels a very angry nation at the moment, um, and I'm not quite sure what can be done. Yeah, I don't know, Matt, at this point. I mean, if you go back to the initial ideology, that was pretty much implemented. It's the same rules, laws, and accountability for everybody. I mean, if you go back to the foundational ideas, the highest place you could be in the United States, and the UK was very good at common law. I mean, from the Magna Carta on. So, you know, we're kind of tied at the hip in some ways. But the idea was that citizen is the top. You know, president works for the citizenry. Vice president works for the citizenry. Congress represents the citizens. 
the Senate represents basically the state's ideals to that governing body. So nothing was above citizen, of course, with the same rules, laws, and accountability, it meant nobody was above the law. So if you were a senator and you broke the law, your punishment would be the same for the breaking of that law as it would be for somebody that's a carpenter that did the same crime. Same laws, same accountability. That's the way it was supposed to be. It's been distorted, twisted, and, you know, taken over, really, by a corrupt system at all levels. I mean, Jefferson was pretty clear. If the judiciary is not independent and the judges are, and this are my words, said if the judiciary is compromised, forget it, you're done. My my paraphrasing of what he said. And he's right. Uh, so you didn't have really three branches of government. I could go on and on. The point being is that the system is so corrupt that if we had those checks and balances and the same rules, laws, and accountability presently, we could correct the system. I'm not that optimistic we can get it back, although there are ways to financially protect yourself. And it's not over yet. You know, I don't want to paint such a bleak picture. I'm telling you how I think today. I mean, maybe, you know, just think if the AI was actually based on absolute truth. <laughs> if the artificial intelligence was smart enough to say, wait a minute, you guys are feeding me biased data. Here's the truth. Things that are bad do have to fail. And that type of thing, you know, might turn on them. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm, I, you know, I've actually thought of this. So it's not over. People have the power. I think that's the main crux of my argument and others is that we've got to wake up you know if everybody for example i don't know what example i can use in the uk but if there's some really no you know do batters out there in let's say the pharmaceutical industry and enough people let's say 80 percent didn't buy their product that's money is power on both ends and we are the consumers and if we boycotted a product or two products or you know i got together and he said you know this entity is just evil we're not buying anything from them believe me that's a lot of power but it's hard it's hard to get three or four people to agree on anything <laughs> you know and and that's by design i really think that part of the major plan is to you know divide and conquer and make sure that there's this red, blue and black, white and, you know, Tory and, you know, labor and all this stuff that goes on to make you waste your energy. I mean, it's humanity versus the power elite. It's us versus the banking elite. And we really do have the power, but we don't think so or know so. And for us to combine forces and just look at each other's brothers and sisters and come up with a, an idea that isn't really that uh, difficult to implement, but it's just how do you spread the word and not get in an argument? Well, you know, I do it, except you're Republican, so I'm not, you know, I mean, all this, you know, I, I, I tried to, uh, you know, I was very young and I decided this whole left-right paradigm is an excuse is an analogy and it's been used by many, but you know, it's left wing or right wing, but it's attached to the same bird. It's really a hoax. Do you know what? I wanted to um, talk to you today about silver and investing. But I think we've kind of run out of time here. So I've got to get on to the next one in a second. But would you come back on and talk to us about silver and investing? Yeah. In fact, 
yeah, Matt, sorry to interrupt, but I'm really working on a few, I think, potential uh, vectors in the silver market that are going Beautiful. to be could, monumental. So actually, it's probably best that it worked out this way because I've got some deep study to do when I'm uh, out of town for a two-week time frame. I really want to dig even deeper than I have, and I think I've got some vectors that I want to verify my hypothesis and I think we could come back after that and I can really give you some solid ideas to think about in the silver market. That is fantastic. I would be delighted to have you back on again. I think it's been a nice introduction. Feel the passion, feel the, feel the uh, energy from you today. Um, so thank you for your time. We'll speak to you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.